I believe that the security architecture that binds this region together is land power. I think the race to quantum, quantum capabilities, whoever wins that race is gonna get great advantage. This is the most consequential region at the most consequential time against the most consequential adversaries. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, Luke is on location to speak with General Charles Flynn, Commanding General of U.S. Army Pacific. He'll be talking with General Flynn about the unique pacing threat posed by China, building interoperability with partner nations, and the future of multi-domain operations in Indo-PACOM. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thanks for coming on, sir. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so happy to have you, sir. And, you know, you have a long, distinguished career. Um, What did it mean to you to take over as commanding general for U.S. Army Pacific? And how has your thinking about technology and the character of warfare changed or not changed over that time? Well, first, I'm honored to be back here uh, in this command. Uh, This is my third time in this command. And again, in 2014, when I came back out here as a 25th Division commander and senior commander of U.S. Army Hawaii, I was... Uh, followed that assignment with being the deputy commander here uh, for then uh, General Bob Brown. And then back to the building for three years to be the uh, Army G357 and then and back here. So I have often said, I know the region, I know the command, I just needed to get to know, know the people. And so understanding the people and the sort of, sort of speak, the human terrain of the, uh, of the region is really, really important. Um, in terms of my thinking about tech and the character of war, well, a couple things that have not changed. Armies uh, seize, hold, and defend terrain. I mean, fundamentally, that's what we do. Uh, I think that we're seeing that wars are unpredictable. Uh, wars are long. Wars are violent. And wars are very human. And so we have to compete every day uh, in this region. I think that Operation Pathways is uh, one of our two pillars that we're uh, conducting out here, and Pathways is, has a form of experiments going on, and that we are trying to bring that technology into the region uh, to spin through uh, the various uh, adaptations that we have to make to our uh, capabilities. Uh, I think that Obviously, nations that master technology rapidly are going to have an advantage. And so them being uh, able to apply those uh, in the v- different capabilities that they have is, is really important. Yeah, absolutely, sir. I think that's an excellent answer. And I think, you know, something that we've identified over time is how important and critical people are still uh, within this. 
You know, while some of the people out there kind of argue that the Indo-Pacific fight is mostly focused on air and sea, you maintain that China's security concerns are almost all land-based. So what are those concerns that the Army is really best suited to match? Let me start by saying that humans have this unique tendency to live on land, and national sovereignty mostly exists on land. Wealth mostly exists on land, and protection of people largely exists on land, and that armies are and play a central role in the region. Their leaders play a critical role in leadership positions throughout the region, and that armies in large measure maintain stability, protect the people, and protect and defend the national sovereignty of uh, most of the countries on the Asian continent, if not all of them. Um, I would also say that the A2AD arsenal that the CCP and the PLA have designed is primarily designed to defeat air and naval forces and then secondarily to counter space, cyber, to degrade, deny, disrupt them. It is not designed primarily to find, fix, and finish land forces, particularly ones that are distributed, mobile, networked, and lethal. So I believe that the Communist Chinese Party has been on an incremental and insidious path to undermine our efforts here regionally, and they have aspirations globally. And so I believe that the security architecture that binds this region together is land power, and that land power can play a central role as a counterweight to the nefarious activities, the destabilizing actions that the Communist Chinese Party have been undertaking. Let me give you a couple of examples in South Asia, right? We have fighting along the line of actual control. There's a large buildup out in the Western Theater Army of uh, the PLA. They are constructing a road from China down to uh, Karachi in Pakistan. There's been a coup in Miramar. There's a road being cut down to Rangoon. Um, There are rail airports, airfields, heliports being built in the Western Theater. There's incursions into the Bhutan. There are ports and airfields that are being opened and and modernized uh, to support the Belt Road Initiative. Uh, And then you, I'll jump all the way out into Oceania, you know, hot in the news is the uh, Solomon Islands efforts by the Chinese, but there are other aspects in Oceania. The point I'm making here is that there are a lot of activities that are going on in the region, in South Asia, uh, in Southeast Asia, in Northeast Asia, that follow this insidious and incremental path that China has been following. And I think it would prove well for us to be mindful of those and to be in locations where we can deny them key terrain. And that terrain is both geographical, it's also human terrain, and that we need to pay attention to what the people's sentiment is in these various countries and then what the countries seek from us by way of help. Again, national sovereignty is paramount, Um, There's more discussion about national sovereignty and because of the, again, the insidious nature of of what the Communist Chinese Party are are doing. And then I'm hearing more and more, particularly after my recent trip into the region where I was in, you know, basically met with like 12 countries, but went to five countries in five weeks. 
there's more and more discussion there about territorial defense and defending, again, their national sovereignty. So these are my concerns, and it is why I offer that land-based forces, armies, have and will continue to play a central role here in this part of the world. And notice that I'm talking mostly about Asia and Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia because that continent is critically important to this effort. Just one last point before I come off of this. You know, there's nearly 2 billion people that live in South Asia from the border of Vietnam to the western border of India. 2 billion people. That is a competition right there for fresh water, food, and minerals. And because freshwater food and minerals are going to maintain a stable and secure environment, it's going to maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific, and it's going to maintain the ability for us to promote and be part of an international rules-based order. And those activities that I was talking about earlier in South Asia are just one chapter of what is unfolding with what uh, the Communist Chinese Party and the PLA are executing. I, I think you made a really critical point, sir, when you were talking about terrain as being part of it. And we've talked a lot about um, technology and, and the U.S. is experimenting with new technology like robotics, AI, machine learning. And robotics have often been looked at as being able to do some of the dull, dirty, dangerous that we don't want necessarily human forces to always have to do. But what new technology do you think kind of plays a big part in any future Indo-PACOM conflict? I've got a couple things here that I'd like to talk about. One, uh, first off, I think it's about how we train. Today, what we are embarking on is standing up a regional training center in the Pacific. As you know, we have one in Europe. We have two, actually, we have multiple uh, in the continental United States, but we've had one at JRTC in Fort Polk, Louisiana, one of the National Training Center in California. We are building and creating and going to mature the Joint Pacific Multinational Readiness Center. So JPMRC is the Army's contribution to PIMTEC, which is the Pacific Multinational Training and Experimental Capability. That is a priority uh, item for the combatant command here, Admiral Aquilino. So JPMRC allows us to have live virtual and constructive environments where we can build readiness in the region for the region, and it'll be in the conditions and in the environment that our forces are most likely to operate in. Secondly, the multinational partners in the region get to train in places like Hawaii and Alaska, which look more like the region, right? Eight Island uh, Archipelago here in Hawaii, tropic jungle up in Alaska, extreme cold weather, mountainous, high altitude. Again, those conditions and those environments more closely replicate what is in the region and the multinational partners can come back here and train with us. We also remain in the region instead of going back to Louisiana and shipping our equipment through the Panama Canal. We're in the region so that we can better respond to competitive activities that go on day to day, be able to be in a position to respond to crisis in the event it happened, or in fact transition if need be to conflict if that were to in fact uh, break out. So. Bottom line is we're trying to build readiness in the region. We're then going to take that readiness. We're going to project that readiness into the region on operation pathways, okay? So as part of pathways, you know, what we're trying to do is 
have our series of exercises that happen in the region, and we want to keep our forces inside the second island chain, inside the first island chain, on the Asian continent, in Southeast Asia, up in Northeast Asia, in the Arctic, and throughout Oceania, so that we can, again, deny key terrain, both geographical and human terrain, to the Communist Chinese Party and the PRC. By denying that key terrain, we will prevent uh, their behaviors from infecting some of the corrosive and some of the corrupt corrupt actions uh, that they've been undertaking. You know, you mentioned about technology. Let me just say that, you know, I think we're at a point where humans and decisions versus artificial intelligence, machine learning tools versus autonomy, right? Autonomous mm-hmm. decisions. I think that's part of what we're trying to weave into each of our uh, exercises out here with the experimental arm of pathways. So, you know, we're trying to do that by bringing tools out here. We're trying to work with Project Convergence, doing some coding at the edge. We're trying to get new technologies out here. We have these signature formations like the multi-domain task force, the first one up and operational in this region, and forward and operating and collecting and uh, beginning to work out the procedural, technical, and human interoperability that has to occur uh, in each one of the uh, operations that we conduct. Of course, a third MDTF, uh, while not publicly announced, is going to be in the region where it locates. I'll, I'll save that for my department, but it's going to be focused on China and going to be focused on the region. Some distributed C2 work that we're working with First Corps out of Joint Base lewis McCord. They're doing some great work in the air, on the land, and at sea uh, to be able to do that. And, of course, we're trying to bring as much uh, robotics and unmanned capabilities here so, again, we can work in the environment and in the conditions that we're most likely to have to respond to. A couple of last things on technology. I would just tell you that um, I think the race to quantum quantum capabilities is is probably the race that whoever wins that race is going to get great advantage in the security sphere uh, in the coming years, if not uh, decades. But it's coming at us faster than we know. Yeah, absolutely, sir. I think you make a a ton of great points. One being the quantum race. Uh, We've seen China dump a whole lot of money right now into R&D on quantum information sciences from uh, quantum satellites, quantum key encryption to quantum computing. Um, And and everybody's looking for that next breakthrough. And I, I think excellent point there, sir. You know, we, there's been a lot of training exercises. Uh, we're, we're in the midst of a, a strategic and operational, really, war game right now um, out in Unified Pacific. What, what's the biggest takeaway you've learned from the many training exercises uh, conducted with, as you mentioned, key allied partners in the Indo-PACOM theater over the past year? Well, it's just reinforcing what we and, and I've experienced out here before is that relationships matter. They matter between individuals, they matter between organizations, they matter between countries. And I believe that our allies and partners are the greatest counterweight to that deterrence by denial, if you will, uh, that I was speaking about earlier. Um, The network of allies and partners and our ability to operate with them and our ability to achieve goals that they seek In other words, there are things that they need assistance with, Mm -hmm. and there are things that we need their assistance with too. 
And so this relationship where it's, it's thicker, it's more robust, it's in each other's interests is really, really important. And our presence gives a degree of confidence to our allies and partners, particularly on the ground where it's not temporal. We're dynamically deploying there, in some cases persistently there, uh, and then in some cases we're rotationally there. And I think all of those matter when we're out operating in the region. There's a real thirst out there, and my previous answer to the previous question, there's a real thirst out here for training centers. In the, last, in the last five countries I visited, four seek to build training centers. Well, they look to the U.S. Army to build these training centers because we know how to do that. In fact, we're building one, as I mentioned earlier, right here in the Pacific. And then I think that these also give us an opportunity to be in the region testing tech in the hands of soldiers out in these various trainer centers. And then, you know, I guess back to the beginning, Luke, about relationships matter, is that, you know, there's three types of interoperability. There's human, there's technical, and then there's procedural. And then there's three dimensions, right? There's the human dimension, there's the physical dimension, and then there's the information dimension. The crossover here in interoperability and in dimensions is in the human side. So, Again, back to relationships matter. If we focus on the human dimension, if we focus on human interoperability, then technical, procedural, informational, and physical dimensions and interoperability will come together. But they are a prerequisite to success. And the relationships fostered, cared for, built, maintained are absolutely vital to what we're doing here. And so my biggest takeaway is invest in that, trust in that, and that uh, investment and that trust will come back to you tenfold. Absolutely, sir. And I think it's critically important because we've talked about the need to build that trust and those relationships over time. Uh, And you can't, it's not something where we can just uh, feed feed weapons and capabilities and and then just go to war with these partner nations, Uh, we have to actually build them as partners, uh, as a part of our interoperability. Or they build us. Yeah, they help. I mean, you know, they're a a quick story, if you don't mind. A couple years back, I was in a a country in Southeast Asia. I brought a Corps commander into one of our command posts. I was a division commander at the time. And, you know, we had these screens and UAVs and full motion video downlinks and had all this, I'll say, technology and, you know, wizardry and mastery by our command post in this facility. And it was in a tent facility. It wasn't in a hard facility. And uh, the brigade commander and the brigade uh, staff briefed him. And I walked out of the tent feeling very good about what we had just shown this Corps commander again in Southeast Asia. And feeling very proud, I turned to him. I said, what did you think, General? And he said, you know, he looked over his shoulder and he pointed. He said, you know, we'll never be like that. And I paused for a minute and I obviously noted that the conversation was going in a different direction. And he said, but that's not why you need us. And then he turned and he pointed over to the jungle and he said, that's why you need us. Mm. And so it was a stark reminder to me that we can come in and bring a lot of technology and bring a lot of what we believe to be capabilities that create advantages when the reality of it is 
his relationship and his understanding of the geography and the human terrain, the culture, the society, the people was actually more important than any of the technology that we were bringing in a command post. Yeah, absolutely, sir. I think that's actually a good segue to another question about, you know, kind of with the changing nature of what we've seen in the global internet and really kind of hyper or interconnectivity around the world and really the role information is playing in the Russia-Ukraine conflict right now. Should planning and training focus more heavily on gaining the information advantage as a critical element of fighting across all domains. We've well, seen yeah. we've seen the Ukrainians really take advantage uh, in the information environment um, and their understanding of the conflict itself uh, has really, really uh, superseded what the Russians have been able yeah. to do. I mean, I think that, you know, just the past couple of years in the Army, we've been grappling with the dimension of information, because that's what we have right now in our in our current doctrine. And uh, in fact, uh, I th- was at a conference a couple of years back when we sort of decided we we were pretty sure that it wasn't ready to be a domain, but we knew it was more than a warfighting function. So you know, recognition that we have to train, educate, and learn, and develop sort of you know, staff procedures to do the planning and education and training that's required to operate in the information environment. But, you know, it's got a wide range of definitions and the conversation is a little irregular, if you will, because we don't have a common understanding of what exactly is the information environment. So that's where we landed on the information dimension. And again, back to I think the training and planning that we're doing on it now is good, but we need to get that work forward into a region. You know, you mentioned Europe, the Ukraine, and Russia. Obviously, there's a lot being learned uh, in in that environment and in those conditions right now. I'm trying to, and my team is trying to, grab as much of that as possible and then bring that into our environment out here so we learn and understand. Because while there are similarities... Uh, between th- some of the threats, the differences are pretty stark between what's actually happening in Europe with Russia and, and Ukraine and what the Communist Chinese Party, the PLA, and the capabilities within China have been doing for the last uh, couple of decades and what they're doing today and what they intend to do in the future. I guess I'd also say that when I look at the fundamentals of what we want with some of our technology, and I'll, I'll kind of go on the, the network part of it here, but there's sort of four principles, I think, that we should seek in each one of our network integration efforts. One is an open architecture. We have to have an open architecture so that all of the joint force can plug into that architecture. In addition to that, we also need a path for our mission uh, partners, whether they be 5 Eye or outside of 5 Eye, to plug into that open architecture. Two, we have to have a better means of giving the authority to operate on our networks and in our technology, with our technologies, and then having a, a commander-centric discussion about the associated risk and how that is assessed. So authority to operate and then a cost-risk assessment of that authority to operate is the second point. The third uh, point is we need to be far more data-centric. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know we're moving that way, but we're moving at a glacial pace and we have to move faster. And then the fourth thing is we have to become transport agnostic. These phones on the tables here, they don't care what transport their data. You don't care what transports their data. So it's agnostic. And so we need to be able to have a network that's able to do those four things. And those four principles, in my view, are where we can start training more, educating more about the information dimension. And again, as I mentioned earlier, while the information dimension and the technical dimension is important, the most important is the human dimension. And then same thing on interoperability. Three types of interoperability, human, um, technical, and procedural. Again, the most important one of that interoperability is the human interoperability. And the hardest to build. And the hardest to build. And it takes longer to do that. But you actually have to get out there and do that. And you have to be consistent and you have to be willing to sacrifice a great deal because the things that you give up, you're going to gain more by giving some things up. It's like any relationship, right? You have to make sacrifices for the good of that relationship. I think it's a fantastic point, sir, because we've seen you know, a uh, relationship between China and Russia and some other uh, allies to, to both those threat actors grow. However, it's extremely transactional and it's extremely tenuous. Um, and when you look at the partnerships that we've had in NATO uh, and throughout Indo-PACOM, um, those come from, as you mentioned before, kind of skin in the game uh, and a shared uh, shared responsibility and shared trust with each other. So I think those are all fantastic points, sir. So my last question, sir, that we like to ask all our guests and we're often told is probably the hardest question, uh, but maybe tells us uh, somewhat about our guest. Uh, what is your favorite movie? My favorite movie? Wow. Last of the Mohicans. What do you What do you love about that movie, sir? My son loved it. So spent a lot of time watching yeah. it. Sir, anything else you'd like to add to the soldiers uh, throughout the Army, but especially within uh, the Indo-PACOM theater? They're doing a fantastic job, and we have a lot of work ahead of us. And the stakes are very, very high. This is the most consequential region at the most consequential time against the most consequential adversaries. So I am thankful uh, for their efforts and honored to be here. Thanks. Hey, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, General Charles Flynn, Commanding General, U.S. Army Pacific. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.